you have your Bible with you this morning, your favorite Bible app, will be in Matthew 5. Matthew 5, verses 27 uh, to 34 this morning. I'm sorry, to 37. 25 to 37. I'm sorry. I'm going to get this right in a second. 27 to 37. Took me three tries, but I got there. Matthew 5, 27 to 37. Uh, it's certainly not any passage that any pastor looks forward to uh, preaching on. <clears throat> but it is Scripture, so we preach it. So if you have found your spot, would you please stand for the reading of Christ's Word? May you hear the Word of Christ this morning. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. It is also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said of those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not make an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the morning that you have gifted to us, a morning that is set aside not only to sing praises to you, but to hear the word that you have given to your people. And as I said a second ago, it is a word that calls us towards action, and it calls us to really be introspective, to think deeply about the motives and intentions of our hearts. But we know it's more than just reflection, but it is a calling for you to transform our hearts, our minds, and the whole of our lives in order to show what this whole beautiful gospel is about. And so, Lord, may you do that this morning. May you lean into us as we lean into you. And may your word open us into your life, into your heart. Father, we ask these things in the name of Christ. Amen. You may be seated. I want to begin this morning uh, with somewhat of a provocative note, not just to be provo provocative, but in order to really get our attention to something deeper, I think that this a lot of times that this passage is about that we really don't pay attention to. I remember squirming through a sermon years ago, many years ago, where a particular pastor was 
carelessly dealing with the details and carelessly dealing with the nuances and the context of this particular passage. And that said pastor ended up belittling women by the end of the sermon and really excusing sinful behavior of men. Unfortunately, um, he made women the root problem. And somehow depicted men as the heroes. And in fact, if we're careful and we're thoughtful with this passage, the details and the nuances, and really get to the context of what's going on, I think it portrays a far different picture than he had painted. Where Jesus truly, in these passages that were just read, he is concerned more about the women and he is more concerned about their livelihood. And on top of that, he has harsh and very criticizing words for the men. And so I want that to be that last statement that I just made to be really the heart and really the environment that we swim in this morning as we hear this passage preached. Because I want that to drive how we understand what Jesus is truly after in these passages. And just like last week, uh, when we're dealing with murder, we notice that Jesus went straight to the heart. And he dealt with murder as exactly that. It begins with its root in the heart. It's not just the act of intentionally killing somebody. Jesus steps back and says, no, no, it's much deeper than that. It begins with its roots in the heart and the hatred of a brother or sister. But he continues the same heart message into the passage that we have today. Like murder, adultery, he adds, is a heart issue. Just look at verse 28. He says, But I tell you, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And in, in fact, we should probably translate this verse like this. But I tell you that any man, not any woman, because he's got an eye specifically towards the men here. Any man who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And notice how Jesus illustrates this verse. It's not the woman that's the problem. Unfortunately, that pastor, that preacher, really missed this in this passage years ago that I'd heard. Women, they aren't the problem here. She's beautiful, yes. Women, you're beautiful, yes. Because you're made in the image and likeness of God. The problem isn't the women, it's lust. It's the heart itself and what its desires are wrongfully trying to twist and distort. Lust, we might define as an intense longing. It's this intense wanting of someone or something else. The Greek word that Matthew uses here uh, isn't just this physical or sexual longing. He uses it a few chapters later to talk about the Old Testament prophets who longed to actually see Jesus. And in other places in the New Testament, it can mean to covet. When we talk about covet, we're talking about some wanting and longing for something that isn't ours in the first place. 
And I think that's really the nature of lust. It's a coveting. It's a wanting. It's a longing for someone who isn't relationally ours in the first place. So what we need to understand is that across the Scriptures is that there's something fundamentally, there's nothing fundamentally wrong with longing. There's nothing fundamentally wrong with wanting or there's nothing fundamentally wrong with desire in and of itself, church. As human beings, we have all kinds of different longings and cravings. Here, let me give you a, a list. Intellectual longings and cravings. We long to understand what's true. Emotional. We desire for our feelings to be met and fulfilled. We have longings and cravings that are relational. We long for friendships. We long for more intimate and deeper relationships. We have also palatable or longings with our tongue. Desires for a medium well steak, preferably 10 to 12 ounces with a baked potato, no sour cream, just cheese on top, and maybe a side salad. We have longings that our tongues tell us that we crave. Or even we have personal cravings like 18 holes at Torrey Pines, Pebble Beach. But that's personal. That didn't excite you, did it? Some of you. But it didn't really excite you. There's these personal cravings that we might have. So the issue arises when our hearts, they distort, they twist these different types of cravings that I just went through. In other words, when we use these cravings to feed a selfish want, that's when they become out of bounds. That's when they become improper or what Scripture calls sinful. Lust falls into this type of category. Lust is when we have physical, selfish cravings that are, quote, out of bounds. They're ego-driven. They're selfish driven for someone who doesn't belong to us in the first place. We could translate Jesus' words in this way. When a man looks at a woman lustfully, he object, objectifies her. He thingifies her. He takes a person and makes her a thing. Makes her an object. He depersonalizes her. He sees and he portrays her as a property or an object, or a possession to be used for his own purpose. Now ordinarily, I would keep going through the passage verse by verse, but I want us to jump ahead, and then I'll try to bring this all back together towards the end. But if I want to jump for a second to verses 31 and 32, because I think they're directly aligned to what Jesus is talking about here and what we just dealt with in the uh, verses of 29 uh, and 30 that we'll get to here in a second ago. If you read with me verses 31 and 32, Jesus says this, It has also been said, Anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual immorality, makes her a victim of adultery. And anyone who remarries, uh, marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So how do we deal with this passage knowing 
It's details. Really, it's context in which Jesus is addressing. First, I think we need to be honest about something on the front end. That some of us come to this text with many, many emotional pains in our past. Don't we? Some of us may even approach this with many marriage experiences that we don't wish upon anyone. Also, we need to keep in mind that each of us comes to these verses with a number of ideas of what we think about divorce. But let the Scriptures reteach us. Maybe, hopefully, Lord willing, our ideas of divorce actually line up to what Scriptures are. My hope, though, is that we leave these verses with a fresher perspective of what's really going on. So let's look at a couple of things. First things first. I want us to view marriage, adultery, divorce with a bigger picture that Scripture paints. That an Israelite in that day might have understood about those things of marriage, adultery, and divorce. Similar to last week's message, we pointed out that being pro-life is larger than just protecting those of the unborn. It's much bigger than that. It's a way of seeing people, acknowledging, respecting them. But it's also a way of life that we live out for everyone from womb to tomb. Likewise, adultery and divorce is a much larger topic of Scripture that we typically overlook. We might just look at this passage or 1 Corinthians 7 and say, well, that's all Scripture's got to say. No. There's a richness in the Old Testament as well. And so let's briefly look at that. Some of the Old Testament will bring up this metaphor of adultery and divorce several times throughout from Genesis to Malachi. (coughs) And it always relates to Israel's relationship to God and God's relationship to Israel. What you have time and time again in the Old Testament is that God always keeps His promises. While Israel is the one rebelling against Him, committing adultery with other gods. They are quick to run to other gods you have in the prophets. If you want to know just how far God will go in order to remain faithful and to pursue restoration with His people... Here's a light reading for this afternoon. Excuse me. Take up and read the prophet Hosea. What you have in Hosea is this, the theme that God is faithful even when His people are not. Even while His people run far away from Him, here is God chasing and pursuing after them. In the opening chapters of Hosea, for instance, we're confronted with two people, Hosea and Gomer. What you find out quickly is that Hosea and Gomer have three children, and Gomer commits adultery and completely runs away from Hosea. And instead of divorcing her, God instructs Hosea to do this. Go to her, find her, pay off the debts to her other lovers, and then recommit your love to her in faithfulness once again. This story of Hosea, we could say, is a prophetic parable. 
It's a parable. It's a story of how God's own relationship is reflected to Israel. And he is the husband and Israel is the bride. And the bride who has chased after other lovers, other gods, yet here's this husband, God himself, who pursues his bride, pays off the debts of her adulteries, and demonstrates his love and faithfulness to Israel. This is just one part of the backdrop, one part of the story that we have behind the scenes and how an Israelite in Jesus' day would have understood adultery and divorce. That's the first thing that I think we have to consider. The second thing is this. We need to keep in mind (coughs) and we need to understand that there was a serious issue in Jesus' day concerning marriage and divorce. And if I want, I want you to pay close attention to what I'm about to say, and it's this. It had become all too common in Jesus' day for a husband to hand over to his wife a certificate of divorce because he found any single flaw in her. Any flaw. The act of divorce had its origin and its roots in a text in Deuteronomy 24, about the first four verses. And what some Hebrew men in that day had become a very common practice to twist that scripture in order to find any fault in his wife and to divorce her. And some commentaries say that even if she burned his food, that was grounds for handing her a certificate of divorce. And then some others would say, well, that wasn't a good enough reason. There would have to be other moral faults, serious flaws that a husband would hand over to his wife, a certificate of divorce. But when this certificate was actually handed over to the woman, it essentially stated that the woman was no longer married. That was her piece of paper saying that she was no longer legally bound to this man. And here's the kicker. After the divorce, the man could sometimes keep all or even some of the dowry. You know what I mean by dowry? That was the money or land that the father-in-law had given to the husband at the time when he and his, uh, his daughter, his son-in-law and his daughter were married. He could have kept all or at least some or most of that dowry in order to profit from that dowry itself. The woman had little to no leverage once it came to preventing or refusing a divorce in this day, especially when they were twisting Deuteronomy 24 to meet their own needs. So this becomes a large enough issue that Jesus has to address it and he has to confront it. And so that's why When I read this passage, he's mainly got an eye towards the men, not the women. And this is one reason why if you read another uh, particular translation or interpretation of this passage, of the message, it writes it like this. Remember that scripture that says, and he's talking about Deuteronomy 24, whoever divorces a wife, let him do it legally, giving her a certificate of papers and her legal rights, too many, 
Jesus adds, too many of you are using it as a cover for selfishness and whim. You're pretending to be righteous because you're, quote, legal. Please, Jesus says, no more pretending. That's the message translation of that. As the old saying goes, something might be legal, but that doesn't make it moral. And that's exactly what many Hebrew men in this day had been doing. They were doing things, quote, legally, but that didn't make it moral. So here's what we have. Jesus is addressing a grave injustice of men mistreating women. And here's what we need to know about women in this ancient Near East, in the New Testament times, in the Old Testament times. If a woman was divorced or widowed, her status became far more susceptible to being in poverty and homeless. So this is how I'd summarize what we've covered so far. In verses 28 to 29, men are objectifying women, making them objects by lusting after them. And in verses 31 through 32, men are using women for financial gain and then discarding them, likely condemning them to homelessness and poverty. We might say, well, this seems great, Michael, but what about that other part that you read a minute ago about the oaths, the vows in verses 33 through 37? What do oaths and, and vows have anything to do with adultery? Would it have anything to do with marriage? Well, I'm glad you asked. In the ancient Near East, in the time of the New Testament and the Old Testament, oaths and vows were expected at both marriage and even at times of divorce. In fact, an oath of marriage would have been expected because it helped ensure this, church, the financial security mainly for the woman to make sure that she was cared for and taken care of because the woman depended upon this document for life and a livelihood, make sure that she didn't fall into insecurities, make sure that she didn't fall into homelessness or poverty. In these times, oaths were very ordinary. They were part of the common day life. And common day practices for financial honesty, it kept both parties honest, but also decency and how they, how they cared for one another. In essence, these oaths were serious businesses in Jesus' day. It seems that Israelite men had turned these vows, though, these oaths that they had made to, to their wives into hollow promises. We're just going to give you this particular uh, oath, this certificate. This shows that we're married. I'm going to find a flaw. I'm going to keep the profits of our dowry and you're going to be on with your way. And Jesus has no time for that. And he goes on to say, you can swear by heaven, is the oath in 33 through 37. You can swear by heaven. You can vow yourself to Jerusalem. You can even swear by the hairs on your head, men. But it's as simple as this. And he tells you in verse 37, let your yes be yes. And let your no be no. Whereas the message translates, when you manipulate words to get your own way, you have gone 
wrong. Men were saying yes on their wedding days, but they weren't really meaning it. They were manipulating their words to get their own selfish ways, to financially benefit themselves, which all of this now brings us back to verses 29 through 30. Let me reread those for you. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out, throw it away. It is better for you to lose one of your body parts than your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than your whole body go into hell. Hopefully you can see that these are extreme exaggerations. Don't come next week with one eye less and then one arm less or one hand less or one leg less. These are what I tell my 7th and 8th graders. These are hyperboles. They're extreme exaggerations in order to make a bigger point. Because Jesus' main point here is his main concern is to grab the attention of his hearers so that we're proactive in dealing seriously with these misguided intentions of our own hearts, these broken intentions and desires of our own hearts. Sin, he's saying, should neither be excused and it shouldn't be neglected. He's telling those around him, we have to deal honestly with sin by confronting it and cutting the sin off before it grows into something far more dangerous and deadly. Hickory Grove, I want us to hear this this morning. The Bible doesn't want to repress or extinguish our desires and our wants. As I said a minute ago, we have all kinds of cravings and wants. We have those intellectual, those emotional, physical, relational, those taste, those palatable cravings and personal cravings. But at the same time, we should prune the unhealthy parts of our cravings so that we can grow stronger and produce far more productive and maturing spiritual lives. We have to allow the Spirit to prune those unhealthy desires like lust, like covetousness, in order for our hearts to be rightly oriented back to Christ Himself. And I think someone needs to hear this this morning. You are not equal to your sinful desires. As much as your sinful desires overwhelm you on a daily basis, you are not equal to those desires, those broken desires. Your identity isn't dictated by those broken cravings. You might think, that's who I am. You're not. Scripture doesn't define and declare you in that way. Your identity is wrapped up in Christ's love for you. Where our culture might chant this, I crave, therefore I am. We see this all the time, right? I crave this, I long for this, therefore that must be who I am. The Christian faith has a completely alternative motto and it's this, I am loved, therefore I am. Because Christ loves me, I am a child of the Father. You are not equal to your disordered and broken cravings. You are sons. You are daughters of our King. That's your identity. That's our identity. That's our hope. 
and our desires and our cravings at their best are to be extensions of Christ's kingdom. And even if we've got broken marriages, or even if we've broken our marriage vows, which we all have if we define it the way that Jesus defines adultery. Guess what? God's grace cannot be exhausted. It's active. It's available. And He is always waiting in order to offer it freely to our wayward, and guess what? Adulterous hearts. When we run to other things besides Him. When we run to other people besides Him. For those of us whose marriages are struggling and you want to give up, let me plead with you this morning. Seek Christ as your sinner. Seek Christ as the sustainer in your marriage. And fight for your spouse. For those of us who've been betrayed or husbands and wives who have betrayed others, guess what? Let me give you something else this morning. Seek Christ and tell your husband or wife of your adulteries and allow God to restore what's broken and what's been fractured. Hickory Grove, none of us, none of us are spotless. None of us are guiltless in our marriages, in our relational lives. We've broken oaths. We've all committed adulteries. But that doesn't mean we excuse our broken desires, but instead we name them and we confront them. Because we have a God who fights for us. Not against us. And if we can endure, and excuse me, if He can endure inhumane beatings and even a Roman execution, and if He can defeat death through resurrection, He's surely able to endure with you through your sins and your struggles to help you defeat the sins that seem to entrap you and ensnare you. Hickory Grove, throw yourself on Christ. Throw yourself on Him and His mercies. And here's the promise He makes. He will give your heart rest. Let's pray. Father, You are always oh, oh so good to us. We live in the hurricane of your love. We drown in the oceans of your grace. I need we say anymore that is our prayer we live in the hurricane of your love
we drown in the oceans of your grace. Thank you. In your son's name we pray, amen.